Okay, it's good to, uh, to be with you. So it's great to be amongst small town pastors. So I grew up in a small town in Scotland, off the east coast of Scotland, and uh, now pastor in a small town in Kentucky, two places completely different from each other in uh, so many ways. I'm still, uh, I've been there almost, I planted the church 18 years ago, still, still trying to figure out Kentucky um, and how to, how to work there. But anyway, so, um, uh, you know, when I say I'm from Scotland, I usually ask if there's anybody who's been to Scotland, anybody here been to Scotland? Oh, there's a few, great. And so I can often tell a lot about people based on uh, their answers to these questions. When I say Scotland, uh, what do you think of? What comes to mind? Braveheart, so like every American of a certain generation. Well, shout out Braveheart. Um, all right, what else do you think of? It's Andrews. Okay, so Southern Baptists always say golf. The actual nine guys are going to mention scotch, right? So I'm going to figure that out uh, as to who you are in the room. Um, so, see, so Andrews. Now, obviously, there's no Presbyterians here, because otherwise you would have said John Knox, right? So founder of Presbyterianism. Um, are there some Presbyterians here? Any Presbyterians? Oh, hey, there is. There you go. And so Scotland being the, uh, the birthplace of Presbyterianism. Uh, Scotland is, though, um, a, in many ways, an unreached uh, country today. About less than 2.5% would be evangelical Christian, gospel-believing uh, Christians. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Uh, grew up in a uh, very much, much an agnostic uh, community. Uh, but also, Scotland is, there's many areas of deep generational poverty. And so about 10 years ago now, we started a ministry in Scotland. Myself and Mez, who wrote the book, Church on Places, uh, started a ministry in Scotland called 20 Schemes. Schemes are not evil, devious plans uh, that we have. Schemes are communities. So in the U.S., you might call them uh, projects. So social housing would be government housing schemes of Scotland. Um, and so our ministry is to plant uh, gospel-preaching churches in the unreached, unengaged, poor communities of Scotland. By God's grace, we now have 11 uh, church plants uh, across Scotland, and um, I would love for you to come and, and visit and uh, come and see the work there. Go to the website, 20schemes.com, um, and maybe even think about uh, are there people you have that you'd love to send uh, to be a part of the work in Scotland. So we're happy to talk to you more during the break. But also, on the back end of that, work with, a, uh, with Acts 29 um, through our global outreach ministry to equip church planters in poor communities all around the world uh, in an initiative called Church in Her Places, where we train, disciple, mentor uh, church planters who are working in some of the poorest places on earth who often don't have access to solid theological training. So we currently have about 200 what we call Church in Her Places apprentices in five different language groups uh, from slums and barrios and um, uh, often rural villages in Southeast Asia or Guatemala in the jungles of Guatemala. Uh, just how, how do you train and disciple and mentor somebody who's in an area of deep poverty to plant a healthy church, a gospel preaching church in an area of deep poverty? So some of the work that we've been doing. Again, love to chat with you more over the break. But also, in my free time, I pastor a church in Kentucky. And uh, one of the things when you do ministry in a small town, in a place like Missouri or in Kentucky, there are two issues you've got to be able to at least have a grasp of, and you'll bump into these issues every time uh, that you are seeking to engage people. And the issue is poverty, rural poverty, which is different from inner city urban poverty. So poverty and addictions. Two things that, um, in many ways, are a blight on our uh, poorest and most rural 
communities. And so what I want to do this morning is we're going to do two sessions. First session is just a, a quick overview of an a understanding of and the church's response to poverty. Then we'll take a break and you guys will uh, do some uh, time together. And then we'll come back and we'll talk just a brief overview of addictions. Uh, what does the Bible have to say about it? And what is our response to it? Now, there's no way we can go into all the detail. This is just literally, I'm going to give you some categories and maybe some questions to be asking. Um, about as you evaluate your church's response to the poor and your church's response to the addict. Um, but So I'm going to introduce you to some resources as well. Let me pray, and then we'll just jump right into that first session. Father, we thank you uh, for these men and women in this room as they seek to be faithful uh, where you have placed them. And we thank you, Lord, that, uh, that you have called them to be a part of building healthy churches in small, rural, often forgotten places, uh, right across um, this region. Lord, I pray that even today uh, would further to strengthen them, to encourage them, and to strengthen their friendship with one another as they uh, press on in what is often difficult work. And so I pray that you'd use our time today uh, to stir us up uh, for the work you've called us to. In Christ's holy name, amen. When you think of poverty or the poor, what is it when you think of your own community? When you think of your own city, your own town or uh, community? When you think of the poor, what comes to mind? What, there's often a part of your city or maybe a street or a neighborhood, trailer park or a certain um, uh, area that you can just think of, you can picture. Maybe you grew up in an area of poverty um, in your county or in your city. But when we think of poverty and the poor, we need to consider our own experience and our own attitudes towards poverty. You see, poverty is more complicated than just dollars or houses or material possessions. It's a more complicated and complex issue than that. There are a lot of misconceptions surrounding areas of poverty. What is it like to be poor? What does it mean? to be in an area of poverty. The U.S. Census Bureau, um, 2021, there's a census here in America, and it defined poverty, or it, it asked a question about what is deep poverty. And the U.S. Census Bureau determined that in 2021, there are 20 million people in America today who live in deep poverty. 20 million people who live in deep poverty. And it defines deep poverty as a family living on less than $13,000 a year. So a family living on less than $13,000 a year would be considered somebody in deep poverty. So now what's striking is most of those families have at least one person working in them. Often we think of poor, we think of welfare state, we think of those living on benefits. The reality is most people in poor communities in rural places are working poor. They have a job, they just can't afford to pay the bills. They have a job, they just can't afford to, to get ahead. 67% of those who live in deep poverty have at least one person working in them. One in five children in Louisville, the closest city to where our pastor, are growing up in poverty. That's probably true in most cities in Missouri as well. One in five kids are growing up in poverty. Homelessness is on the rise again. Um, and homelessness in rural communities often looks different than homelessness in urban communities. In urban communities, you think of homelessness, you think of the people living under the bridge, under the freeway, the highway. In poor communities, rural places, homelessness are people living on the couch. 
sleeping on the couch. They don't have a place to call their own. Maybe living in their truck, their car. Just don't have their own place. That's on the rise in our communities, particularly as rent rises and housing costs rise, as evictions rise, and as the cost of living rises. There are more children in your school system today who don't have a home that is their own, who are living and growing up in somebody else's or house, living with multiple families in their homes. That's often the picture of poverty in our communities. There's a survey recently, uh, actually quite a, quite a while back, and uh, that for, by the World Bank, that asked people in some of the poorest places on earth to answer the question, what is poverty? And their response to that question, I think, illustrates for us, it helps us have a better grasp of our understanding to what poverty is. So you can't respond to poverty until we understand the experience of poverty. And so those in the poorest places on earth were asked the question, what is it like to be poor? And here's some of the answers. Somebody in Moldova, in Eastern Europe, said, for a poor person, everything is terrible. Illness, humiliation, shame. Guinea-Bissau, the lady there, said, I feel ashamed when I stand before my family and I have nothing to feed them. One person in Latvia said, we cannot afford to invite anyone to our house. We feel uncomfortable visiting others because we cannot bring them a gift. We're always unhappy. Somebody in Uganda said, when somebody is poor, she has no say. She is inferior, voiceless. Vietnam, I will always be poor. Hear those answers? Think if you ask somebody in your own community, what is it like to be poor? And often their answer is not, I just can't afford to pay the bills. I can't afford to buy the food I want or go to the store I want to, buy my kids this. Often their answer is more about their experience of poverty. What's it like to be poor? I feel ashamed. I feel powerless. I feel voiceless. I feel hopeless. I feel afraid. I feel inferior. I'll never, I feel trapped. I'll never escape. I'll always be poor. You see, if we think that poverty is just about dollars, housing, schooling, then our response to poverty is going to be affected by that. Right? So if, if you think that poverty is ultimately about a lack of good education, we've got to, then your response will be, well, we just need to have better schooling or we need to provide tutoring for inner city kids or our poor children to get them a better education. If you think that poverty is caused by social injustice, then your response is to, is to be an activist in your community to promote social justice. If you think that poverty is caused by a lack of material possessions or money or resources, then our response might be to have a clothing drive or to have a food bank or a a homeless shelter, our understanding of poverty often leads to refuels our response to poverty. But hear what people are saying when they live in poverty. They say we feel shamed, afraid, voiceless, inferior. Tutoring isn't going to solve that. A homeless shelter doesn't fix that. A food bank won't overcome their sense of shame. In fact, 
it may well add to it. It may leave them feeling a greater sense of shame that they have to depend on somebody else to feed their children because they can't. It may leave them feeling a greater sense of feeling hopeless and in fear because they have to get a clothing from somebody else to give to their child because they can't themselves do so. You see, sometimes when we think we're helping, we're actually perpetuating the very sense, the very experience of poverty that people in our communities are living with. You see, the problem of poverty is not solved by simple solutions of handouts and transactions. The problem is much deeper than that. It will not be solved by a two-week mission trip or afternoon a week serving food. Poverty is much more complex. The cycle of poverty, long-standing pattern of drug addiction, alcoholism, crime, broken families often combine to keep people trapped in cycles of poverty and addiction. The reality is people don't need bread. They need a whole new way of living. Material resources and skills training alone will not address all the needs of the poor. But the truth is, this is what we hold, is that the gospel does. The gospel does. And that's what we have to be absolutely convicted of. Somebody experiencing a sense of shame, trapped, powerless, voiceless, inferior. They'll never make it. They'll, they'll never be able to provide. The gospel tears down every one of those expressions. You see, the Bible teaches us this. John 12, 8. It's that story, isn't it, of um, John chapter 12. Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he's having that dinner party, and then the woman comes and breaks the alabaster jar over the feet of Jesus. And this extraordinary act of worship and devotion over Jesus. She literally takes her life savings, everything that she owns, everything that she has, and she smashes it over the feet of Jesus to anoint him. And what is it that Judas says? Kind of pious, pompous Judas. You know, the one who's carrying the, the money bag for the disciples. What a waste. What a waste. We could have used that money and spent it on the poor. Knowing full well that he had no intention of spending that on the poor. Right? What does Jesus say? The poor you'll always have with you. But you don't always have me. He's saying, look, the greatest thing, the greatest thing that people need is, is not in that jar. It's the one that the jar was smashed over. It's in Jesus Christ alone. And that doesn't mean that the material needs are unimportant. They're very important. But that can't be what we lead with. And neither can it be what we end with. We have to be motivated by Jesus and trusting in the gospel and placing our hope and confidence in the gospel, motivated out of a love for Jesus, not out of a love for the poor, but out of a love for Jesus. He is worthy of worship, and therefore we're going to go to the hard places and the poor places because Jesus is worthy of worship even there. And we're going to introduce them to the person of Jesus, and in doing so, they're going to find the very hope that they've been crying out for, which may well lead to them moving into a new way of life and a new community of faith that may well help them overcome some of these cycles of addictions and poverty that's leaving them trapped and exploited. You see, if we lose confidence in the gospel, 
And if we lose confidence in the church, then we will not help the poor. We will not help them at all. So you see, we need to have a biblical framework of poverty. What is poverty? Well, let's go back to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1. The world created the world. He created everything. And then he created man, Adam, and Eve. He created humanity. But he created a world in which there was no poverty. Right? Adam and Eve had everything. They weren't poor. They had anything they wanted. They owned it all. There was no addictions. There was no crime. There was no exploitation. There was no shame. There was no guilt. There was no fear. They were not trapped. They had freedom. Why? Because they were right with God. Then Genesis 3, tragedy enters humanity's story. When sin enters the world, when sin enters the world, poverty enters the world. Now work becomes a chore. Now they're going to have to fight to survive. Now everything is fighting against them. Poverty, in that sense, when you look at it from Genesis in the creation storage and the account of the fall, poverty is a broken relationship with God that leads to a broken relationship with yourself. You start abusing yourself as image bearers of God. It leads to a broken relationship with others who no longer live in harmonious community and a broken relationship with creation. Now it's a struggle just to survive, to put food on the table, to have shelter for my family. See how sin breaks every one of those relationships and the result is poverty. Relationship with God, relationship with ourselves, our own bodies, what we do, relationship with each other, the sense of community that we're created and creation itself starts fighting against us under the curse of death. But when the human race functions properly within those four foundation relationships, then we begin to experience what is called peace. Peace of God, the right understanding of myself, so doing the very things that lead to life, not to death, the right relationship with other people, so having a right sense of community with others, and a right relationship with creation. I start working and enjoying my work. See how the problem actually isn't poverty. The problem is sin. And the solution isn't, as Judas thought, just take that money and give it to the poor. The solution was sitting right in front of him. The woman knew it. It was Jesus. So everything is broken. Poverty is the result of relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious, and are not enjoyable. Poverty is the absence of peace in all its forms. Poverty in the biblical sense, then, is a universal human condition. It knows no geographical or social or financial bounds. That's why often you can provide somebody living in poverty a better job and a better house, but they'll still end up in poverty. So you haven't fixed the problem. I, live in, I grew up in Scotland, and Scotland has a, a socialist government, a uh, strong welfare state, and you go into poor communities in Scotland today, and you wouldn't think they were poor. And I drive around even the city here, Penable, and you see this obvious poverty in this community. You tell it by some of the streets and some of the houses. Scotland, though, you've got 
beautiful houses. You go in the poorest places, and the government is pumping millions of dollars into poor communities, building new houses and nice schools and doctor's clinics and education, and obviously taxes are really high to pay for all that, and yet people are still trapped in poverty, still trapped in that cycle of drug abuse and addictions and broken relationships and self-harm. It's whitewashed tombs behind those nice cleaned-up doors and cleaned-up yards are still broken people, separated from an eternal God, living in a sense of shame, fear, feeling voices, and feeling afraid. We need to be careful that we don't come into our communities, particularly our poor neighborhoods, thinking that we're going to fix them. We're going to go and fix them. We're going to show them the love of Jesus and fix this community. That's not our mission. It's not our mandate. Our mandate isn't to fix poor communities. Our mandate is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And as we make disciples of Jesus Christ, people then begin walking in a sense of peace that actually releases them from the very things that have been oppressing them. We must be sure that we're coming with the good news and not with the idea that we're better, we have something better, we're going to give you something better, in order to fix your miserable lives. You see, often we, our posture in areas of poverty is often one of superiority, cultural superiority, certainly. We come into a place and think, if only they could live like us. If only they could have what we have. If only they could be more like us. Then they could treat their children better. Their, their, their relationships wouldn't be so messed up. The reality is, we're just as broken. All of us. You could have grown up in a mansion, the son of a millionaire, and still end up dying a bankrupt before a holy God. That's why many people who grew up with great wealth still feel that sense of shame, that sense of fear, that sense of feeling trapped. Money's not the solution, housing's not the solution. So what is? It's Christ. It's the gospel. So how then should we respond to areas of poverty? Let me uh, give you some categories to think through. And then very briefly, I'm just going to introduce you to some principles. So some categories and some principles about how to engage the poor in your own community. So these categories, have you ever read a book, a really helpful book called When Helping Hurts? Um, and there's another book called Toxic Charity, which kind of goes along uh, with that one as well. Some of these categories kind of come from uh, that book, but also the book you got there on the table, uh, Church on Places, kind of, uh, kind of uh, hitches onto that in ecclesiology, right? So when helping hurts is fine, but it's not church-centered. But you, you kind of read that alongside Church on Places, and you kind of have a church-centered vision for the poor, and I'm thinking a much more um, holistic one. So um, when you think of the international uh, relief Work so let's say there's a part of the world and so I was just in uh, well I was just in Puerto Rico actually yesterday so I was in flew from Puerto Rico to here yesterday so I was in Puerto Rico yesterday uh, devastating hurricane came through Puerto Rico uh, a few years ago destroyed 
many of the uh, infrastructure in Puerto Rico. And so when there is a hurricane or a natural disaster, there's usually a response. The international relief agencies begin to respond. And so I was just, uh, some of you are Southern Baptists. I was just part of us in the Send Relief uh, building, which is like the North American Mission Board Relief Agency. And so they got a huge building there and huge warehouse doing some relief work. So what happens? You go in, when there's a, a crisis, the first response is what's called relief, right? So when there's a crisis, then there has to be immediate relief because people are dying, right? So they need a, an immediate response. They need temporary housing. They need immediate aid, right? They need shelter. Relief is appropriate after a disaster because people are living in a downward spiral that will destroy them and may even kill them if they don't get water or shelter or healthcare medical assistance immediately. So the first response to a disaster, to a crisis, is relief. That's the right response, is relief work. But you don't stop in relief. You then move on to rehabilitation. And so the next phase after a crisis is you move from relief to rehabilitation. Rehabilitation is then you start rebuilding. Right, so get the, you got to get the uh, hospital back onto the power grid. you got to build the housing again so that people can move out of the temporary housing back into permanent housing. So now you're trying to revert back to pre-crisis living. Relief, rehabilitation. The third is development. What lessons can we learn so this doesn't happen again? How can we make sure that we're building better buildings, stronger buildings, maybe a stronger government or institution so that this kind of thing doesn't happen again next time around. So you see how the International Relief Agency thinks through crisis management in those three categories, relief, rehabilitation, and development. And it's helpful even for us as Christians and churches to have the same kind of categories when we're engaging the poor because those who are living in poverty are living in crisis. They go from one crisis to the next. Right? It's a crisis to pay the bills. It's a crisis to put the lights on. It's a crisis to get my kids to school. It's a crisis to get a driver's license. It's a crisis to um, stay out of prison. It's a crisis to get from this, just to get through the week. Everything is a crisis. So people are living in a state of crisis. But here's the problem. Most churches, we get stuck in relief. We just do crisis relief. Start this homeless shelter, this food kitchen, this uh, food pantry, this soup kitchen. We just get stuck in crisis relief. We never move beyond crisis relief to rehabilitation and on to development. And so, now, if you think of biblical categories for them then, so relief, think of your mercy ministries. Those are your relief ministries, right? So we're going in and we're doing acts of mercy to those who are in immediate danger. That's good. Promise we get stuck there. And we don't have a plan to move beyond relief to rehabilitation, which is evangelism. Now I need to introduce them to the person who will get into pre-crisis living, Jesus. So now I need a plan to get from relief, mercy, to the gospel, evangelism. And then we don't stop there either. What happens if they get saved? If, if this you know, guy who's had a 10-year heroin addiction comes to faith, what's my plan? This guy who's got nowhere to live, he comes to faith, and now he's a part of the church. What's our plan? We need a plan for development. Another word would be discipleship. Mercy, evangelism, 
discipleship. But often, too many churches, we don't have a plan to get beyond mercy to evangelism. We don't have a plan to get from evangelism to discipleship for those living in poverty. Mercy Ministries and Social Justice ends up being nothing more than an opportunity to update our church Instagram feed. The way we do ministry to the poor, even our international mission trips, are rarely thought through. We rarely have a plan for long-term development. We can paint a school or plant a community garden all we want, but unless we have a plan for developing meaningful, evangelistic, and disciple-making relationships, then we will accomplish nothing. Far too many Christians and churches are a hindrance to the poor, not a help at all. We're guilty of paternalistic outreach, often wrapped up in the guise of successful ministry. We fed a thousand people this year. Well, that's a failure if you feed the same thousand next year. That's not success. These ministries go on almost in perpetuity, often serving largely the same constituents, with many of them never moving from crisis to relief and on to development. They are trapped and we're often guilty of perpetuating the very ministries that keep them trapped. Herein lies the fundamental problem. We need a bigger plan than just crisis intervention. We need a plan to share the gospel, to see people come to faith, to be discipled and then trained. How many of us have a strategy that builds into our mercy ministries, a plan for evangelism and discipleship? How many of you have seen church members who have come out of your mercy ministries who are now faithful leaders in your local churches? Some Principles for you to think through. I'm going to give you eight principles to kind of assess your mercy ministries or at least how to develop a plan. So eight, eight principles. First is this. First principle is this. No, I'm giving you a principle of how to move your mercy ministry on. Right? So I'm not talking about how to do mercy ministry well. I'm assuming all of you do really good mercy ministries. Right? So your ministries of mercy, of mercy to the poor. Right? But how do you move it on from relief to ongoing evangelism discipleship? Number one, give new converts responsibilities quickly. Give new converts responsibilities quickly. You see, when we are doing a, a, a ministry, whether that is a... Uh, we, we've got a couple of ministries in my church, so I'll just use them as examples. So uh, two things that we do. One is we have a... Um, a transitional um, housing facility for those who are, don't have a permanent place to live. It's literally just a room like this with cots in it, and we provide a meal and, um, a, place, and a place to get showered, and it's open from 7, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. every day, right? And we partner with other churches to be able to staff that and volu- and through volunteers. Uh, but the question we asked when we started that is, we don't want this just to be about providing a bed. We want this to be an opportunity for us to develop a friendship, with people, to engage in conversations. So we encourage our volunteers, don't serve the meal. You know, behind your counter, serve the meal. No, you sit down at the table and you have a meal. You have a meal with people. Hear their story. Every poor person's got a story. You've got a story. You know, and people living in poverty love to tell their story. Nobody else wants to hear their story. Their social worker doesn't want to hear their story. Their doctor doesn't want to hear their story. The kid's teacher doesn't want to hear their story. They just want to move them along in the system. The, the judge doesn't want to hear their story. Hear their story. Just listen to their story. 
and then share your story and have an opportunity to introduce them to the person of Jesus Christ. And maybe, maybe strange things happen when Christians share the gospel and the Holy Spirit works. Sometimes people get saved. Sometimes people come to faith and they put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what do you do with them? Do you just kind of like praise God, pray for them, and then you kind of update your church on Sunday? Hey, we had a profession of faith on Wednesday at the, at the homeless ministry. No, now you need to give that new convert responsibility quickly. Why? Because they're going to be far more effective at engaging the poor than you ever will be. And so invest in them. Disciple them quickly. And I mean... Start pouring into them one-to-one. Start doing one-to-one Bible study. See, here's the other thing about ministry to the poor. The poor don't live according to nine-to-five schedules, Monday to Friday. Because they're living in crisis, from one crisis to the next. See, this is where we give up so easily. We say, well, I invite them to church. They never come. Well, maybe, maybe that's a bigger deal than you think it is. You know, you know how intimidating it is for a poor person to walk into a building like this? I once had one person tell me, uh, one person who grew up in, who was homeless, and he said, he looked at a church building and said, you may as well have told me that was a spaceship out of, uh, that came from another planet and just landed there and a bunch of aliens gathered there. I have no idea what happens behind those doors. It was so terrifying to them. Something that seems so easy and natural for us to walk into a church building is so intimidating and terrifying. So we don't say, hey, why don't you just come to church on Sunday? We meet at 11 o'clock at 5010 Pennebaker. We say, hey, I'm going to pick you up on Sunday. Many of them don't even have a ride to church. I'm going to come and pick you up on Sunday. I'm going to call you first because you'll probably forget. And so I'm going to give you a call, and then I'm going to let you know I'm on my way, and I'm going to pick you up. And then I'm going to walk in the building with you, and I'm going to sit next to you, and we're going to do this together. Far more effective. So invest in new converts quickly. Invest in them. Develop relationships. So you may have... 30 people you're ministering to, and one, one or two people are beginning to, to open up to the gospel, want gospel conversations. Pour your energy into those two people. Invest in them and give them responsibilities. Number two, communicate in culturally sensitive ways. Communicate in culturally sensitive ways. Look, you can cross a street and you cross a culture in this city. You may think that you know, if you're in one city or one state, you all have the same culture. But the reality is you can go from one street to the next and people live in very different worlds and have very different worldviews. And that's just not just racial, right? We can often confuse um, culture with race or ethnicity. But you can be talking to somebody of your race or your ethnicity who has a very different culture because of their upbringing and their worldview and the way, so the way they dress. Now, you make assumptions about the way people dress, and that's because that's a cultural assumption that you are making. The language they use, the music they listen to, the way they spend the time, the food they eat. So we need to be thinking about how to at least learn the culture. Right? So, and don't come with your cultural prejudices or biases that think that my culture is better than their culture. No, you wouldn't do that as a missionary. You wouldn't go that if you go into the mission field and, and say, well, you know, I'm American. Well, you probably will because you're American. I was like, we're better, right? <laughs> and so, you know, but if you want to be a faithful missionary, an effective missionary, the first thing you do is you learn the culture that you're trying to reach. You ask questions. That's how you learn. Ask questions without making assumptions. Right, so communicate. And then begin to communicate in culturally sensitive ways. So in other words, what you're trying to ask is, okay, I want to, I want to make sure that I'm using words 
that they're understanding. Um, saying phrases that make sense. Um, so think about how to communicate culturally sensitive ways. Number three, embrace failure as opportunity. And what does that mean? Embrace failure as opportunity. We're going to mess up. We're going to mess up, but don't give up. So this is hard. This is messy. It's difficult. So when you're investing in a relationship and in a friendship and that person starts, you know, they, they, don't, they stop responding to your phone calls, then you think, well, I failed. That, that didn't work. And we quit. We quit too easily. And often the reason why they don't respond to your phone calls because a lot of people in poor communities, they change their phones all the time. But their numbers are changing constantly, right? And there's things you've got to learn about how to engage the poor. So rather than, because something didn't work, rather than saying, well, I'm just going to quit, just learn and adapt, right? Failure is an opportunity to learn. So if you have a ministry to a community, maybe you're planning to engage people in a certain community and nobody shows up, well, you just learned something. That didn't work. So that isn't a reason to stop trying to engage the community. It's an opportunity. Well, what did this teach us? So learn and adapt. Failure is opportunity. Number four, look for unlikely leaders. Look for unlikely leaders. Now I'm talking about, obviously, in, in certain church planting contexts, when we're planting churches in a poor community, but even as we're seeking to do ministries in poor communities, often it's the, the person that you'd never think of as a leader who could well become a very effective leader of a ministry in a poor community. You know, just because somebody is poor, don't have a, a credential, a GED, or high school diploma, or a university education, just because someone's poor doesn't mean they're stupid. Often the furthest thing is from the truth. Actually, my experience has been the poor people I work with in my church are the ones who love to read. They've got an appetite for reading. When the, I can't get my middle-class suburban Christians to read anything, right? They're too busy watching the football game. Um, but, the, but these guys, they love to read, but they want to read with you. And often they want to read out loud. They just learn differently. Right? So we developed a discipleship resource called the First Step Series. It's available nine marks. Uh, put it out with us. First Step Series is uh, 10 books in that series. It's designed to be read aloud to people who struggle to read. Uh, but it's introducing them to theology and introducing them to the church, introducing them to the person of, of Jesus. But as you are seeing somebody really begin to read, and even though they have no education or background and they've got tattoos and no teeth and they um, struggle to communicate, but maybe you think, huh, maybe this guy one day could become an elder, a pastor. And maybe we have our own preconceived ideas about what a leader in a local church looks like. You ever thought about... Uh, Somebody who served time in a 10-year heroin addiction 20 years from now, maybe being an elder of your church? Absolutely, he can be. If you can, he can. It's the same Holy Spirit. So look for unlikely leaders. People who are from a community are going to be the most effective at engaging the community. So look for unlikely leaders. Um, five, treat it like cross-cultural ministry. Again, this is similar to uh, look for culturally sensitive ways of communication. But cross-cultural ministry means that you've got to change the way you do ministry. It's not just the way you communicate, but also the way you do ministry. Like I said, um, so when we do ministry in, in, small, in poor communities, we don't do it around small groups. Now, small groups may work well in more 
middle class or suburban context when we kind of meet in homes and we have a meal and we, um, you know, we, we chat with each other. Why doesn't that work in a poor community? There's a couple of reasons why it doesn't work in a poor community. One is because people don't live by your schedule, so they can't commit to be somewhere at 5 o'clock every Wednesday right, in the same way. So you've got to adapt your schedule. Second, it's because they actually find walking into your home often intimidating because they realize that their home can never meet, match up to yours. And so it actually creates that further sense of them and us. doesn't mean you can't get to that point. Eventually you will, but don't start there. Don't start doing ministry in a home. The better way to do it is just to go into their community. Why are, we also, why are we always asking them to come to us? Come to our church. Come to my house. Meet at the time that's convenient for me. Cross-cultural ministry actually asks the question, how do I go to them? How do I walk alongside their schedule and walk in their streets? You know, you're intimidated by their communities, but they're just as intimidated by yours. And so we need to be thinking about how to do cross-cultural ministry well in an understanding, respectful way. So treat this cross-cultural ministry. Number six, develop culturally relevant models of training. Develop culturally relevant models of training. So that kind of comes back to what I was talking about when I um, look for unlikely leaders. So um, again, if your leadership training model is all about, hey, go and read these books, go on online, watch these classes, listen to these podcasts. This is not going to work. Right? That just doesn't work. So the most effective way of raising up leaders is the way that Jesus did it. Who, after all, he took some pretty poor guys alongside him, said that they were simple men, unlearned simple men. Peter, fisherman, right? James. Now, he had some wealthy guys with him too, right? So he had a diverse team. But he also had these simple, poor, working-class men as his disciples. How did he train them? Side by side. See, our model of leadership development needs to be side by side, not face to face. See, we're growing up with a very Western idea of how to train leaders, which is what we're doing right now. It's called the face-to-face -face way of training. So you guys sit there and you stare at me and I stare at you. And I speak and you take notes. And that's what we call leadership development. But actually, the more effective way of raising up leaders is side by side. Come alongside someone, one to one. Just live life together. Read a book together. Invest in the friendship. Invite them to sit at your table. You know, one person, uh, one guy who um, he actually he, he moved in with me, but he was uh, came out of prison and, and uh, uh, single dad couldn't afford his own place. So we invited him to come live with us and. When he sat at, we, we, my family, we sit and eat dinner together as a family every night. And we pray and we have a meal. And he sat and ate with us. He said, this is the first time I've ever sat at a table and had a meal. And he was like in his 20s. The first time I've ever sat at a table with a family and had a, a meal. We have so many assumptions about what's reality out there, what's normal for most people. So develop culturally relevant models training, side by side, walk with people. Number seven, be aware of your own personal bias or cultural prejudices. We all have them. We all make assumptions. We all make assumptions that the way people are talking to their kids, the way mothers are dressing their children, we make assumptions about the way people's cars are, 
the unkept yards. They could be the hardest working person, just struggling to survive, working more hours than you do, and yet we make assumptions they're lazy, right? But they're just sitting on the couch. No, that's obviously some are, but there are plenty of people lazy and sitting on couches in nice suburban neighborhoods too. So the, your house and your yard and your car says nothing about whether or not you're lazy, right? We have our cultural biases, and we come into communities with our own inbuilt prejudices. Now, you just need to do a gut check with, your own, with yourself and just keep your prejudices and your biases at the door and recognize this is a person made in the image of God that Jesus died to save. And as I preach Christ, the Holy Spirit can redeem him as much as he could me. And so let's walk in from a posture of humility, respect, love, and understanding. And finally, number eight, be honest about the cost. Be honest about the cost. Financial cost, yeah. To do ministry amongst the poor is incredibly expensive. You know why churches don't get planted in poor communities? There's no money in it. You know why churches that start new campuses? They never start campuses in the rundown community down the street. Right? They start campuses in the nice new suburban community down the street. Right? Church planning models. Church planning models is built on the model of three years. We're going to fund you for three years, and then you're on your own. That doesn't work in poor communities. You know, you've got to fund that thing for its life. It'll never be self-sustaining. That pastor will never be fully funded by its church members if you're going to plant a church in a poor community. We need to be honest about the cost. Investment in poor communities is a long-term deal, and there's no return. No money's coming back, right? doesn't mean there won't be a return. Trust there will be a harvest. But it may affect your church budget for a long time, negatively. Be honest about the cost, but also be honest about the relationship cost. You can invest in friends that may walk away. One of the things I think about some of the people I've invested in, discipled, who went right back to the drug addiction, went right back to that abusive relationship, went right back to uh, that reckless way of living. And it cuts you every time. You've got you to be honest about it. It's going to hurt. It's going to be messy. That's why you can't do this unless you're part of a good, healthy church that's going to support each other, encourage each other, and help you press on and stir on. Be honest about the cost. Be honest about the cost for your church as well. There are some things you're going to have to stop doing. Some things you need to start doing differently. If you really want to engage the poor on your own doorstep, are you willing to change and to adapt in order to truly reach and to engage the poor. The church can do a lot of different things in the service of reaching the poor. But our ultimate goal is this. We preach Christ in Christ alone. We're motivated because we love Jesus, not because we love that drug addict or that single mom. He is worthy. He alone is worthy. That's what presses us on in this mission. And we trust that the church is always the solution, never the problem. And so we press on confident that what the poorest need in our cities, in our communities, is not a new ministry. They need a new way of life. They need a community of faith. They need a gospel preaching church. May we become that to them. Let me pray. Holy Father, as we've gone through some of these things, some of these issues are difficult and complex and hard to perhaps even grasp. I pray, Father, that you take just 
a few of these things, these categories, these questions, and help us to become more faithful evangelists and disciple makers among the poor in our own communities. And Lord, I pray that we do so because you are worthy of the worship where you are not being worshipped. In the name of Jesus, we pray.